0: The Beatles had this charm, John Paul and George and probably then Stuart and Pete had this charm when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know they would have a bad night or the gig would you know didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, Where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, To the top, Johnny and I say, Where's that, fellas? And they say, To the topmost of the papermost And I say, Right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Hey, hey, hey. Where are we going, fellas? To the, to the top. top! What top? To the, the very top. top! They had this chant, and John would say, Where are we going, fellas? And the others, in an American accent, and the others would say, To the top, Johnny! Get the exact wording right. Um, Where's that, fellas? To the topmost of the topmost, Johnny. <laughs> and that was there rallying call in When Times Were Bad to kind of, yes, you know, we're still here, we're still together. A lot of irony as well. It was kind of done in a heavy American accent as a sender.
1: Hello, welcome to Toppermost of the Poppermost, Side B, December 1963, the Billboard charts. I'm Ed Chan. I'm Kiddo Chul. And I'm Martin Quibel. We start with the week of December the seventh, nineteen sixty three, at number twenty eight, a great song in my room by the Beach Boys.
2: This is one of my all time favorite beach boys songs and you know to call back to a previous episode two words for freshmen (laughs) this is definitely influenced by them these exquisite harmonies and this is also another step forward for the beach boys in subject matter this is beyond the cars the girls The surfing, this is much more introspective. This is another step forward to what would become Pet Sounds. More mature subject matter. This is about introspection, reflection. It's a stunner. I absolutely adore this song.
1: Yeah, this is definitely a case of great minds thinking alike. You know, the Beatles had done There's a Place, which is very similar subject matter, but Brian Wilson wouldn't have heard the record by this point. No. Very definitely they came to the same conclusions independently.
3: Beautiful lyric, although very sad in some ways as well.
2: Yeah, this definitely has a more melancholy, isolating kind of feel of retreating to your own space. And and it's really such a leap forward for them. I feel like this and Surfer Girl are like two songs that really show the growth and maturity and the complex harmonies of the Beach Boys that would eventually, as I said, lead them to Pet Sounds you know, just a few years later. But this one I just think is, is just an absolute stunner, one of my all-time favorites. And as you said, Ed, really interesting how similar in subject matter it is to There's a Place. But as you said, no evidence that Brian Wilson knew about that song.
1: It's interesting how honest Brian Wilson is being here. You know, given what we know about his life then and certainly the way his life would develop, he is actually... Talking from the heart here is almost like Dylan, you know.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. He's really being vulnerable here. Later on, Brian Wilson talked about how he, Dennis, and Carl Wilson worked on the harmonies and all a long, long time. And he later also said in his autobiography that the song meant even more to him after Dennis passed away, partially because of just how closely they work together on the song, but also just the melancholy sound to it.
3: The fact that he throws a C major chord in there in the key of D, as opposed to him dropping to like a C sharp note, they've gone to a C note instead, which is even lower. So that even makes it even more of that dreamy, melancholy feel to it as well.
2: And as we said before on this show, go back and listen to the four freshmen and absolutely understand the influence they had over Brian Wilson
1: and his harmonic arrangements. And as you mentioned, the chord changes—that's something that the Beatles would do a lot of through the decade.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: One more of those naughty chords, as Dylan liked to call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so we go from a thoughtful, introspective song to not. <laughs> <laughs> Number 38, The Nitty Gritty Song by Shirley Ellis. It is pretty much just a standard dance tune.
2: Yeah, and nothing wrong with that. dance tunes are always fun she became known even more for a song that i curse whoever came up with it the name game <laughs> that it's a, that i'm sorry
1: but well, so, we all know it kit kit bobit banana fan <laughs> it
2: is annoying as hell but it was a hit i get it
3: i don't know that song
1: y- yeah. you don't know the name game i don't know that song
2: you okay, don't know well- the name game
1: we're no. we all no. taught that song In kindergarten or so
2: Ed will of course play it for you later And we'll insert it in the show You will curse the day
3: I can't wait for the listen back to this
2: Oh, you will curse us You will curse who, who wrote it <laughs> yep. Oh, I can't wait I can't wait for you to <laughs> hear
4: it Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln bo Bonana, bo be Mo-Minkin Lincoln
1: the nitty-gritty song was also reviewed by the Beatles on the December 7th jukebox jury. We start off with John, who all he has to say is, I like it. <laughs> and it,
2: again, just cuts to the chase. Paul said, I like this kind of record, but it doesn't say anything, which I think is a good summary.
3: Yep, <laughs> you know? For sure. Yep. Yeah, Ringo said, we all like this sort of thing, but it won't be a hit.
2: Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And George's comment is most interesting at all. Won't be a hit in England. We haven't got around to that sort
1: of thing yet. The host then picks up on that. So he then goes back to George and says, well, wait, you mean the British teenagers are behind the Americans? And George walks it back a little bit. Well, we've liked this type of thing. We meaning the group, I suppose. We've liked this type of thing for years, but it hasn't really caught on. It's interesting because... It is very clearly the Americans who are behind the British from the perspective of looking back 60 years. Yep. And so
2: despite the overall positive comments, they rated it a miss. Yeah,
3: Yeah. I quite liked it. It got my foot tapping.
1: It's a fairly standard dance number.
2: Yep, exactly. As much as I find the name game annoying, I can see why it was a hit. Anybody can sing along. He had a catchy beat, so I could see why that was a hit. You know, this one, it's just kind of another dance song.
1: And at number 70, another beach car song. There's Jan and Dean with Drag City. More room, vroom sound effects. The harmonies are okay, but there's nothing new here.
0: tough with chrome reverse A blue coral wax looks pretty gonna get my chicken make it out to drag city
2: yeah i want to give a shout out to the drummer yes Ill palmer um, oral palmer this was amazing he was considered one of the inventors of rock and roll he's a member of the rock and roll hall of fame he was one of the most prolific studio musicians of all time He has been on so many recordings, nearly all of Little Richard's hits, all of Fats Domino's hits. He played on You've Lost That Love and Feelin'. The list goes on and on, and it was the drumming that oppressed me the most. Other than that, I think with Jan and Dean, I like songs like Dead Man's Curve a little better than this. This one, it's fine. But it's just kind of another car song.
1: And as I mentioned to you, a song with the title Drag City means something completely different in uh, 2023.
2: <laughs> I actually yeah. had thought
1: of it that way, but yeah. Particularly because the lyrics then describe getting a wax job.
2: Yeah, well, oh, it's like, no. oh, okay, uh, oh, all right.
3: Oh, geez. Now I know what that term means
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right at number seventy two the next from Ray Charles, that lucky old son it's a great Ray Charles vocal. not that Ray yep. ever delivers a bad vocal. The backing kind of slightly ruins it for me though it's ever so slightly reminiscent of Georgia. wash all
4: my troubles away. And I- lucky old son now He's got nothing to do Roll around
2: all day. Yes. Sir. It's Ray Charles. Does he ever turn in a bad vocal? The song is a little bit in terms of subject like Old Man River kind of talks about the toll and hardship of the singer's life and wanting to sort of escape to the natural world. Great singing, but backing singers yeah. overdone.
1: More screaming girls, as George Harrison would describe them. Oh, God,
3: yes. My opinion was, could they take away the backing vocal list and the strings and just have Ray's voice with a piano, the bass, maybe a guitar, and those nice soft drums that are going on in the background. Just make it basic. That would be incredible.
2: Yeah, particularly when you have someone like Ray Charles with that voice. You don't need the overdone strings, the backing vocals, or at least not that much backing. Just
1: have enough to showcase his voice. I mean, it's something we've been saying since this summer. It's one of the bigger trends, negative trends, the massive overproduction that was going on on these records throughout the summer and now into the winter of 1963.
2: Absolutely, and not just Ray Charles. Nat King Cole, there were issues with, and Tony Bennett. I mean, a number of singers. If I had been the producer, I would just like, tone it down.
3: I'm sorry, but we'll be getting to Tony Bennett later.
1: All right, at number 83, a song which has presented a little bit of controversy both among ourselves and among the folks on the internet, not because we like the song, but because of its oddness. The song is Hookatooka by Chubby Checker. He claims to have written it. His name is listed as one of these songwriters, but I don't think so.
2: This is the second song we've encountered. From an album he did called Chubby's Folk Album, clearly he was trying to show that he wasn't a one-trick pony, and just about the twist. So he was trying to show his versatility, and let's face it, cash in on the folk trend. So the song he claimed he wrote it, and yet there was a folk singer named Judy Henske who claimed that she wrote it. Who, hey, I take this when I can. It's a Chicago one. <laughs> She went to a few colleges here, uh, and one of them, weirdly enough, was a school, Rosary College. Rosary College, my mother graduated from there, and I attended my freshman year there. I transferred to another school, but it's now known as Dominican University, so weird connection. She claims that she wrote this song.
1: There's a YouTube video of her. Performing the song, and she has a whole long story about the origins of the lyrics. What she claims is that this was an old Chicago children's song, that uh, the, the African American children, whose mothers were, um, well, um, uh, in the oldest profession, would have their children stay outside and play outside.
4: For when the police came by, the little children would act as little warning agents to the people in the bordellos, which is not an Italian dessert, by the way. <laughs> telling them that the police were coming by so that the people could stop doing whatever they were doing that was like against the law, they're doing straight things like playing poker or reading comic books or, you know, chewing gum, you know, anything to make them look like they're busy. Some were painting little designs on the backs of turtles and stuff like that, you know, they just start doing anything that they wanted to do. Which looked like it was a straight occupation you know, it was really weird seeing all these women painting turtles Are they going Come on, those, what are they doing there in the negligee painting a turtle? <laughs> but uh, anyhow, it served to convince the police that nothing was really going wrong The name of this is Hookatooka Soda Cracker. Does your mama chaw tobacco, they would sing If your mama chaw tobacco,
2: Hookatooka Soda cracker. A code obviously. Now, apparently that story is questionable. That may be an urban myth and that the story may actually be based on kind of a nursery rhyme. Yeah, it's, it's
1: almost like Queenie eye, the you know the, the Paul McCartney song which we now know is based on an old British children's game. There is a you know kind of a ring around the rosies type of thing. In Britain. But nevertheless, a really bitchin' little song, and I hope that you'll like it a lot. <laughs> okay?
2: <laughs>
4: That's just a slang expression.
2: <laughs>
4: Meaning it's a hell of a good song. <laughs> Hook a took a my soul to crackle well. Does your mama chew tobacco? If your mama chew tobacco, say, (laughs) "Tuk tuk my son."
2: When they both came out with this song, Chubby threatened to sue. So I guess it has never really been determined who really wrote this song, which story is true. It's been controversial.
1: Chubby had the hit version. There is no question about that. And and he earned the lion's share of the royalties. But it is odd. And I will say that the lyrics sound nothing like something I would have expected from Chubby Checker. At the very least, the lyrics came from somewhere else.
2: Yeah, they definitely do not sound like something Chubby Checker would have written. I don't know. And Martin, you said you're not a big fan of the song anyway?
3: I certainly don't like this version by Chubby. I'd probably prefer a traditional one sung by kids. I don't know.
2: Mm. He's definitely trying to cash in on the hootenanny craze. You can definitely picture people singing in a circle and clapping and singing along to it. But other than that, I don't really find it that memorable.
1: All right. At number 85... Out of Limits by the Marquettes. it is based on the theme of the outer limits tv show
0: there is nothing wrong with your television set
1: it really doesn't have much of a theme so i'm not sure why you know it's a, we've taken control of your tv set it's more about the dialogue than anything else when i think about that show yeah
2: and it's just kind of a an odd song overall, and Rod Serling was not too happy about the song because he felt it, shall we say, borrowed from the theme song for The Twilight Zone. The da 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 I mean, and that's all over this song, no doubt about it. And the, the group itself was comprised of some top session musicians, including Hal Blaine, who we all know from The Wrecking Crew. And I just found it kind of an odd <laughs> song. It's a
1: weird record.
2: Isn't it? And it even has like a bit of a surf guitar sound. It ventures in kind of into country at one point. I mean, it's just kind of a mishmash.
1: Can't make his mind up. Yeah, exactly. I actually kind of like this record. I don't love it, but I kind of like it.
3: Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing that Kit probably likes it more than I do.
2: Not really. I just found it just strange. And I don't mean I can't handle a song that's multi-genre, but this one, it just ping-ponged from one to the next. I'm like, okay, the sci-fi song, oh, now it's surf guitar. Oh, now it's country.
3: I like the guitar in this a lot. But then you've got the addition of Grandpa's Bontempi organ there thrown in for good measure. Oh, yeah! You know, what's next? Is little Jimmy going to come in far too loud with a cowbell and the Scottish relative Angus throwing a bagpipe solo? He didn't know where it was going.
1: Yeah, I actually don't think we're too far off. I think I just like it a little bit more than you guys do. You know, and you dislike it a little bit more than I do. But, but I think <laughs> on the, the 1 to 100, I'll put it at 55. You'll put it at 45. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd probably go 40, maybe. 30. Yeah, maybe 40. Yeah.
1: Okay. It's not like you're saying this is the worst record in the world, and I'm saying, oh, it's the greatest thing I've ever put to disc. It's okay, but I like it a little bit more than you do. It's chaos. <laughs> yeah, but we actually get a lot of chaos in the charts this month. Yeah, true. <laughs> At number 88, Baby's Gone by Gene Thomas, a song co-written by Roy Orbison. This song I like a lot, but I really don't care for Gene Thomas's performance of it.
2: Yeah, I would have rather heard Roy Orbison sing this.
0: Baby's gone away and left me lonely Didn't say goodbye, didn't tell me why, just left me here to cry with nothing but a memory.
1: Bobby Goldsboro did the song later on, and that's actually better than the Gene Thomas version.
2: Yeah, and boy, you can tell Roy Orbison wrote this. Well, co-wrote it, I should say. As I was listening to this, I thought, yeah, I could absolutely picture Roy Orbison singing this. It has drama, the slower tempo, it's got the strings, and the lyrics, won't somebody please bring her back to me and she'll never be lonely anymore. You know, that big ending.
1: I agree with you. I really would have liked to hear a Roy version of it.
2: Exactly. Gene Thomas wasn't bad, but I would have liked to hear Roy sing this.
3: I would have liked a better orchestration, really.
2: Yeah, that wouldn't have hurt either.
3: I thought the orchestration was registering for free transport for the elderly because it it sounded (laughs) (laughs) time-specific. Like 1940s, early 50s, with the strings.
2: That's true. They did sound a little, sorry, Ken Michaels, dated.
1: (laughs) Geriatric, shall we say? Yeah. Kit got her Chicago reference, so I I, I get my Houston reference in here. Gene Thomas had Houston roots. He is described as picking up a guitar at age 12 and performing in Houston clubs well before his 18th birthday. Wow. His birth name is Gene Thomason. His first hit was a song called Sometimes, and you'll appreciate this. Kit is described as a swamp pop classic. Oh, no kidding.
2: Wow.
4: Tell me, my darling, if you love me Tell me if you feel the same Come on and tell me,
0: my darling, if you love me Or if all the tears...
1: Words, that song would eventually go to number one across Louisiana and Texas. Yep, Swamp Pop Central. So after that, Gene Thomas would go on and have some additional success with his wife, and then he would go on and after he got divorced and write songs for Waylon Jennings, Kenny Rogers, the Everly Brothers, and Tina Turner. Wow. You're kidding. So he would be a popular songwriter well into the 70s. Very cool.
3: He wasn't wanting for any money.
1: Gene Thomas died August 26, 2012 of lung cancer at the age of 74. Wow. Wow, fascinating. Oh,
2: didn't know he had that prolific a career.
1: So I get a reference and you get a swamp
2: pop reference and I get, yep. So
1: win, win. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At number 90, thank you and good night by the angels. This is the group that recorded My Boyfriend's Back. It's not nearly as memorable as My Boyfriend's Back. It's got loads of unnecessary sax on it. It's a fairly 50s-style girl group, pre-spectre girl group type song.
2: That is exactly what I wrote. Sounds like a 50s throwback. Definitely a heavy doo-wop influence. And once again, you know, we've talked about it so many times on this show, nice girls don't stay overnight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But at least they didn't go off and get married afterwards.
2: Yeah, at least they didn't lecture about you go get married. So that's true. At least they didn't go that far.
3: (laughs) It's very close to the Diana chords, you know.
1: I heard that, yes. Mm -hmm.
2: So
3: the first, second, and fourth chords, it's transposed to a different key. But the first, second, and fourth chords are exactly the Diana. But the third chord is the relative minor to what the major chord would be in the Diana chord. So that's how close it is.
1: Interesting, okay Alright, at number 97 A song which has now become The bane of all of our Existence as Beatles fans Because "Surfin' Bird by the Trashmen Would be accidentally recorded Over the John Lennon performance Of Money from the Stowe School
3: uh, Oh No Is that why John Stone hates the song?
1: Well that's part of why John Stone hates the song I think he also just hates the song <laughs>
3: Hey, Jared.
2: It's a silly song, and yeah, that pa, 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 and all that, but it's a fun song. It's, it's just silly. I don't know how else to put it.
1: I've heard it once too often, and it just gets on my nerves it's annoying
2: i'll give you this it was really overplayed back when i was working at that jewelry store where i heard sugar shack too many times they did play surf and bird a lot on that station too but i don't have that same ptsd as as with that other song i like the guitar in it and the drumming's great for what it is it's a fun song but yes the lead vocal gets a little grating i will say that
1: and as Martin mentioned, there is a video on YouTube for this song. If you want to see some prime early 1960s dancing, check out that video.
2: Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I don't think I saw that.
1: That is not choreographed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it used in a Pee Wee Herman movie?
1: The more recently, it was a family guy. With the bird
3: itself, that bird character. Yep.
1: Yeah. Ah, okay. All right, at number 100, Burt Bacharach and Hal David with Anyone Who Had Heart by Dionne Warwick. It is a great vocal, but I prefer the Scylla version. Same. Oh,
2: I'm going to have to disagree with you guys. I love Dionne Warwick, and I really like her version because Dionne Warwick made singing Burt Bacharach and Hal David songs look so easy. And I like her breezy style. She just made it look effortless, and I really like her style and i like soul black's voice don't get me wrong but i felt like with her she was pushing it a little bit that's how it came off to me and Dion warwick just made it look so effortless
1: well i mean the main problem i have with the Dion warwick version is those horns have been pushed up a little bit too much Mm -hmm. you take those back you let her voice carry the song it might be better I mean, yeah. it's not bad, but it is enough that it makes me go, okay, that's not my favorite version of the song.
2: I love it. And just shows you how skilled she was at interpreting their stuff. Because Bert Bacharach later talked about how the song changes time signature constantly from 4-4 to 5-4 and a 7-8 bar at the end of the song. But that's how their songs were. Weird chord changes, weird time changes. And she somehow could navigate made it sound easy, which it most certainly yeah. was not.
3: I prefer the backing on Scylla's version. Bert did the arrangement for both versions, for Dion's version, and for the, wrote the arrangement for Scylla's version as well. But yeah. I just somehow think that the arrangement for Silla's version, the backing music, it just hits more than Dion's. So in a sense, I'm wondering if I'd prefer it, if Dion was doing the arrangement that Bert came up with Facilla's version. I wonder if I would have preferred that.
1: That could be interesting. Nowadays, with mal technology, we can do that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, Off Peter, you go, Jackson. Peter Jackson. We move on to the second week of December, December the fourteenth, at number sixty. Pretty paper by Roy Orbison, a song written by Willie Nelson. It's not one of Roy's better performances. His vocal is great, but the performance is not overall my favorite the backing is kind of busy in
0: the distance the ringing of laughter and in the midst
4: of the laughter he cries Pretty
2: actually liked Willie Nelson's version that he recorded years later. I thought that was a little better.
0: Pretty paper Pretty ribbons of blue Wrap your presents To your darling From you Pretty pencils To write and I love you
1: Pretty paper, pretty ribbons on. That's been in his repertoire, and it's still in his repertoire to the present day. You like younger Willie a little bit more. I kind of like older Willie. But when he does it, he basically uses the same arrangement, very light drums and just him and the acoustic guitar.
2: Yeah, exactly. And he wrote this Christmas song, the story of a street vendor that he really did see, near his farm back in 1963 in Ridgetop, Tennessee. He really saw this street vendor who was selling paper, pencils, and he wrote this song about it. And here's my PTSD story about this song. (laughs) Here's another one. Many years ago, I took guitar lessons. This was when I was 12 or so. And my guitar teacher loved country. And... I was not really a big country fan, and he made me play this song over and over and over again. Can
1: you still play it?
2: Not really.
3: I don't think she wants to.
2: Exactly. I can listen to it now and appreciate that it's a pretty song, but I couldn't listen to this song for years because Mr. Carver (laughs) used to make me perform this song again and again and again. Whenever this would come on the radio at Christmas, I'm just like, turn it off!
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Ooh. We've changed sides now because th- this is on my Christmas playlist every year.
2: Now I can listen to it and not cringe, but for years, no. <laughs>
3: I do like Willie's version as well, which yes. brings brings me to a, a sort of bit of a Beatles link. Mm-hmm Okay. Willie Nelson's version, actually backing him up, are some musicians who would back Ringo up on the Boca of Blues album, who include both Pete Drake and Jerry Reed on guitars.
2: Willie can get anybody he wants, so I guess that shouldn't surprise me.
3: And the Roy Orbison version that we're speaking about was recorded in Decca Studio 2, the studio that the Beatles failed the audition in.
1: Alright, at number 75, an artist who has become one of our favorites Brenda Lee with As Usual It would be a hit on both sides of the pond. It's let down slightly for me by the backing again, overproduced and it's kind of got that little chatty bit in there which I don't get As
4: usual Today I look My mirror,
2: as usual. I told myself that you're still here, as usual. I love my girl Brenda, but this song just didn't really do it for me. She performs it very well. I mean, she's Brenda Lee. You know, that voice is just amazing. But this just didn't really go anywhere for me, as you said. Maybe the arrangement a little overproduced. Also just kind of a typical breakup song. I mean, there just wasn't really anything that memorable about it and we've just heard her do so much better than this.
3: I'm not fond of the backing, but a great vocal range shown by this firecracker again.
1: (laughs) Brenda Lee is still with us. The stage was set at the Musician's Hall of Fame. He's one of the greatest drummers of all time. To honor a music
2: legend. Please welcome Ringo Starr. With a little help from his friends like Peter Frampton, we met
4: in 19.
2: 19- <laughs> and Brenda Lee. When I was young and in my rocking years, the Beatles
4: opened for me at the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany. Well, I bet
2: Ringo Starr was inducted into the Hall of Fame and received the first-ever Joe Chambers Musician's Legacy Award.
0: I don't know if Nashville is still famous for the numbers. One was it? Okay, make the one a five.
1: And so when he played the Ryman just this past summer, he accepted the award, and amongst the crowd was none other than Brenda Lee. Oh, very cool. The press asked her who her favorite Beatle was, and she responded, well, I loved them all, but to me, Ringo was just adorable. I <laughs> love doing all I can to support my fellow members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but Ringo has got me beat. He's in the Hall of Fame twice, once for being in the Beatles and once for his own records, and I love both of those Ringo stars. I love his singing on records, everything from with a little help from my friends to act naturally from your are 16 to the No-No song. I love him in the movies and on TV, like in Magic Christian, Shining Time Station, and Son of Dracula. Where'd she pull Son of Dracula? I was going to say, that's impressive that she knows. (laughs) Wow, she's a fan. Ringo was there right next to her, and he said, well, Harry Nelson was Dracula. (laughs) Then Brenda Lee responded, well, I'd pay big money for a tape of that. (laughs) Ringo then answered back, Well, when you find one, get one for me. (laughs) (laughs) When Harry was doing the Beetlefest circuit, actually at the Houston Beetlefest, Lonnie Pena's ex-wife went to the fest and Harry was playing Son of Dracula, but it was on two tapes. He played the first half and realized he had lost the second half. No. He filled out the rest of the spot with just playing tunes for the assembled crowd. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That tells you about how Harry's drinking was going at the time. But yeah. it, it is a great story. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if somebody wrote it for Brenda Lee or what, but Son of Dracula, that is great. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's great.
3: No mention of Princess Daisy then.
1: Well, that we will get to when we talk about something over on the fab side of things. Okay, at number 84, Hey Little Cobra by The Rip Chords. We mentioned The Rip Chords before, particularly Terry Melcher and Jack Specks, Nishi. Apparently that was the way that Phil Spector liked to refer to him, was as Specs. When the flag went down, you could hear a
4: burn. The stingray had me going into the... And I got to high, and when I flew by the stingray, I waved my bar. Spring, little Cobra, getting ready to strike. Spring, little Cobra, with all your strike. Spring, little Cobra, getting ready to strike. Spring,
2: little Cobra, with all your might. It kind of reminded me of the Beach Boys shut down. But what the ripcords are best known for, they were produced by Terry Melcher and. Bruce Johnson, future Beach Boy, who also sang in addition to co-producing them. You can see why Bruce Johnson would fit in with the Beach Boys. <laughs> he certainly got the sound down.
1: It's a much better song than the Jan and Dean song we just had.
2: Yeah, I would yeah, yeah I agree. I would take this to the Jan
1: and Dean song.
3: I think the lower back vocal is too high in the stereo mix though.
1: Yeah, no, at number 89, did you have a happy birthday pipe, Paul Anka? We all agree on this one. It's a terrible record. Oh. All right,
2: let me get my knives out. <laughs> <laughs> and let me say, I know Paul Anka wrote some great stuff.
1: And this well, we were just wonderful. talking about the Diana chords, so:
2: Exactly. But supposedly, he wrote this for a dedication to his wife Anne, served as a celebration of their shared love and a reflection on the passing of time. OK? Now, that's nice. But, boy, was this overwrought, overdramatic. I don't know what the voice he was using. Was it supposed to be kind of Elvis-like? And the arrangement, the ending is just, you know. I you describe a, it
1: as unfortunate.
2: Yeah, did you have a happy birthday without me? It's just <laughs> insane. It was hysterical. I played this for my parents because I just i couldn't believe it. And my father's response was, Paul Inc. is a smart man. How could he write this? He said, he's a smart guy. He's written some great things. And he actually said, and he sounds angry while singing it. I said, he wrote it. <laughs> I mean, how could he sound angry? Yes, you are. I've never heard anything like it. So, all right, I'll stop now.
1: (laughs) I could go on forever. You got anything to say about this, Martin?
3: Yeah, just why? (laughs) Why?
1: (laughs) This was also one of the songs that the Beatles reviewed on the Jukebox Jury show. And if you thought some of their other reviews were vicious, oh boy. So they played the excerpt of the song. They go to George first. He makes a little wisecrack. Oh, well, yes, I did. Thank you. Referring to, did you have a happy birthday? (laughs) Then he looks at the camera and goes, but if I'd heard this song first, I might have gone right off it.
3: Oh. (laughs) oh, Yeah, not friends now after he helped them get into America.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Then Paul responds with, well, you know, I don't like people who have a crack in their voice. And John being John. Well, I think it's in his head. <laughs> <laughs> Unanimous miss. We agree with
2: them. Yep. Good choice. We do.
3: Yeah, Well done.
2: I guess even Paul Anka can't be perfect.
1: <laughs> At number 90, more PTSD for poor Kit. Oh, no. Daisy pedal Picking by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs, their follow-up to Sugar Shack. <laughs> and follow-up is being generous because this is another one of those Oh, we'll just take all the elements from the first song and put them into this one. It's not the same tune, but the organ and the little dun dun dun, that's all All here in this song as well. Yeah,
2: it did trigger a bit of PTSD, I will admit, when I heard this. It's just amazing how some artists will do that. They'll just be like, oh, okay, that hit single works, so we'll just repeat it but just change the elements slightly. We'll get another hit. Ugh, I didn't care for this.
3: So is that an organ then, and not like a really badly played penny
1: whistle? Yeah, I believe that's an organ. Yeah, I think it is.
3: I'm just giving away what I thought.
1: It's not quite as bad a ripoff as that Tremolo's record we had last month, but it's pretty close. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Watch this space for a compilation of the worst of of
1: Toppermost coming your way. (laughs) we have two songs for the worst of 1963 (laughs) out of this list don't we yeah i think so (laughs) yes that along with that burt Bacharach song (laughs) oh yeah this is now followed at number 93 by a record that i don't know about you martin but kit and i were actually really pretty interested in this record when we were sitting here listening to it it's a song called surfer street by the allisons i'm sure our friends both Allison Boron and Allison Bumstead are happy to know that there was a group called the Allison's out there
2: <laughs> yep and even cooler they were a surfer girl group <laughs> I love that but they played other stuff it wasn't all just surfer kind of stuff <laughs> Was a minor hit, and I think this is a fascinating song. I really like the soulful vocals, the twangy guitar, the piano. It's surfer, but it's not like a typical surfer sound.
1: It's almost like a Prague record in some places. It reminded me of Inagata Vida almost. A little bit. It- yeah, I mean really different. Merton, what'd you think?
3: I enjoyed this a lot and I could hear the proto prog in there. And it's completely new to me. I I never knew anything about these people before and This is one of those little gems that we've discovered through this.
1: Well, and the B-side is also a great record. It is another cover of Money. Granted, we had lots of those, but we talked about the Lizard's version. We talked about the Ringo version. This is almost a predecessor to that. And dare I say it, it's better than either the Ringo version or the Lizard's version. It was really good.
2: on it almost proto-electronic from 1963
1: <laughs> in particular you listen to the record it's almost like they have heard the beatles record they do the harmonies from twist and shout in there That's In places, it's almost like they are borrowing from the Beatles' arrangement. But in all likelihood, they hadn't heard with the Beatles yet. No. I would describe them as an ahead-of-their-time band for sure. Really cool. We gotta research them a little more. Alright, so we've done a little research and we found some interesting things about who the Allisons actually are.
3: Yes, we have. I believe it's another one of those, quotes scandals.
1: How many times have we talked about groups not just singing with other groups, but going under assumed names? The
3: rumor is that this might be another one of those times where Darlene Love and the group The Blossoms are the actual real group and not The Allisons.
1: None of us would have guessed that that's Darlene Love singing. No. So there are no credits on Surfer Street, but there are publishing credits because, of course, the songwriters have to get paid.
3: Yep, of course The music industry was still relatively based on the old system of sheet music So it was more about the writers
1: On the record, if you look at the publishing company It was co-published by Art Rupe's Venice Music And the David Gates and Leon Russell-owned Dragonwick Dragonwick spelled W-Y-C-K
3: Ooh, two names that everybody knows there Or should do
1: Leon Russell, how many times have we mentioned Leon Russell on this show?
3: That's right, and we've already mentioned uh, David Gates playing on a couple of songs as well as a session player.
2: David Gates of Bread. This doesn't sound anything like bread.
1: So in his book, Top Pop Singles, Joel Whitburn remarked that Surfer Street is similar to Big Boy Pete by The Olympics from 1960. Big Boy Pete was written by Don Harris and Steve Terry, who recorded it as Don and Dewey and their band... For specialty records in 1959, opposite a song called Farmer John. They also wrote a song controlled by BMI called Surfer Street, not the same song.
3: Okay, okay. I did wonder. I'm glad you you mentioned that, that it's not the same song.
1: The piano on Surfer Street was almost certainly played by Leon Russell, and the song likely included David Gates as an arranger, although I've also read that uh, our old friend, uh, Jack Nishi, uh, the arrangement of this song. And it oh. sounds like something Jack Nishi would have done. Yes, it does. That explains Dragon Wick being a co-publisher and that, while not definitive, is pretty likely for this tune. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. All right. And then just to show you the variety of the charts, our buddy, we get another song from Frank Ifield on the American charts at number 94. Frank Ifield is covering... The Bing Crosby tune, please. It wouldn't be a toppermost show without Frank Ifield. No.
2: You gotta admit it.
1: Well, we're gonna be coming to episodes without Frank before too long. I'll miss them. It's not gonna be the same. <laughs>
2: I was waiting for the usual yodeling and all, but not as much in this one. A there is a little bit, bit. But not a lot. He gives a little bit of a country flair to it, but this sounds like it'd almost be like in a Western movie, like it has kind of a cinematic sound to it. And in fact, Please was co-written by American composer of popular music, principally for films, and the lyrics were written by Leo Robin and collaborated with Ralph Ranger, a composer of popular music for films. And one of their biggest hits was 1938's Thanks for the Memory, Mm -hmm. which of course was Bob Hope's theme song. So this is another one of their compositions. So obviously this is, as you mentioned, Ed, this is a cover. It's fine. I don't know if I'd say this is better than uh, Bing Crosby's.
1: The arrangement to me is kind of just a faux wall of sound slightly. Not completely, but ever so slightly. I agree. It's fine. I don't know if
2: I'd call it a standout, but I don't know. Martin, what do you think?
3: I've heard versions of this that were more interesting, and that's where I've got apologies to Frank Ifield fans. <laughs> it's, but this is the one where please please me.
1: The Bing Crosby version of this song is the one that Julia Lennon learned and Julia would sing to young John as a boy. And John would always keep that first line in there. Please lend a little ear to my please. You know, even from a young age, he got the wordplay and it's like, Oh, well that's cool. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. He certainly learned from that. I will say the record needed an update. The Crosby version sounds like 1932, but this isn't necessarily it.
2: No, Mm -mm. but yeah, certainly Ben Crosby's style of singing from that period. When you hear that version, you really hear how he changed kind of like Frank Sinatra did changed his style of singing from them. Because as you said, it's, it was very much of the time that croony. I mean, he was always a crooner, but, but it was a different style. I mean, it sounds, as you said, very much of the time. And as time went on, I think he did change the style a bit. So it didn't sound as dated.
0: Oh, please lend your little ear to my plea. Let's take the same song. Yeah. This time, we'll give you the intro. Just relax and take the song. I don't know if I can fight. Hold it! Now wait a minute! I just sang one word. How could I go? not uh, please. What is it? Plee. Plee. That's much better. going to take it from the start, sir? Well, I'll try. I uh, go ahead. Ba 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 Lend a ray of cheer to my plea. Tell me that you love me too. Move, oh, move, you. move. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get two, it. Move. Give me a chance. Here we go. Oh, 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 please. Do-wop, do-wop, do-wop. Let me hold tight. Nice.
1: All right, at number ninety-five, Johnny Mathis with. I'll search my heart. It's a little bit better Johnny Mathis than some of the ones we've had here. It's still far from his best. I like the Mathis vocal, but once again, we've got the screaming girls (laughs) as the backing vocalist. I might like it a lot more if it were stripped back to just the lead vocal in a small combo.
2: I agree. His voice is great. Beautiful singer. But I agree. Overranged. The the screaming girls as you said, so the screaming backing vocalist
4: I searched my heart.
2: One thing that's interesting, though, one of the co-writers of this song, Alan Ferguson, went on to write themes for 1970s uh, TV shows, including Barney Miller (laughs) and Charlie's Angels. Oh,
1: that's a classic.
2: But Barney Miller in particular, I'm like, wow, that's one of the
1: all-time best. We're getting into a little theme song section here. Next up, The Brothers Four with Hootenanny Saturday Night, which was at least the theme for the Hoot Nanny TV show for 1963. It may have been into 1964. We haven't been able to verify that, though. Yeah,
2: but for sure, 63. This is, of course, cashing in on the Hoot Nanny craze. And boy, this sure sounds like a typical Hoot Nanny song. The sing-along aspect, clapping along, and this is the stereotype. And they were best known for their song Greenfields in 1960. But I can see why this was theme song, at least for a time, for the TV show Hootenanny. That's
1: certainly a no-brainer. I love those lyrics just because they're so ironic. If you think we'll be rowdy, you're right. Yell on your
0: favorite, we'll sing it loud and Come and bring your lady.
1: There's nothing more (laughs) innocent than them singing those lyrics. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's going to
1: be out of control. (laughs) All right. So we move on to December the 21st, the third week of December at number 80, whispering by Nino tempo and April Stevens. (laughs) as we were saying about the jimmy Gilmer record this is kind of a bad copy of deep purple
2: yeah i agree they definitely were trying to emulate it it was a similar arrangement particularly april steven's spoken word part of whispering while you cut a they were Trying their best for most copy Deep Purple and it falls short.
3: It's okay, but I wouldn't go out of my way to listen to it again.
1: At number 88, our old friend Stephen Ede are back doing yet another Goffin and King song. I can't stop talking about you. <laughs> I, I don't really care for the song all that much.
2: And it's Goffin and King. You know, I just found it a slight pop song. My friends think
4: I'm an awful boy Ever since I fell in love with you I'm not well-rounded anymore There's just one thing I like to do I just can't stop talking
2: about you I don't see how this would have connected with Teenagers. And in fact, this also was on Jukebox Jury, and the Beatles
1: commented on that. And three of them voted it a hit. That I can't believe. Paul started out, well, people will whistle this one. Okay.
2: (laughs) And and, uh, I love Ringo saying she carries him, actually.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What is it? George says it could easily make the 20 so relaxed.
1: Then John, once again, John being John, well, they're relaxed because they're getting on a bit. I don't like it. <laughs> it reminds me of that comment you had about going down to the mines in the other show, Martin.
3: Right, okay. I liked it a bit more than you both liked it. Cause really? Just the message about, you know, oh, I can't stop talking about you. But then again, that's the romantic in me probably seeing that little bit in there.
2: Yeah, I'm cynical. No, I'm just can't. I mean, it's a nice sentiment. I just didn't find it original, really.
1: I agree with John. It's a miss, teeth rotting sweetness. And if you're familiar with the That Thing You Do soundtrack, Tom Hanks went and created a whole album worth of faux early 60s type material. There's a song on there called Lovin' You Lots and Lots, which is kind of a vicious parody of this song.
4: Fall and spring, you are the sun that summertime brings. You are the stars in the nighttime sky. You are my girl and I'm your guy. You got me all tied up in knots, and I'm loving you lots and lots. I'm just loving you lots and lots. I'm loving you.
1: about you. I don't know if he was actually had this song in mind, but it's certainly songs of this ilk, and it could well be a parody of this song in and of itself.
2: Wow. I'll check so,
3: that out. So is that an album full of bangers that I need to check out?
1: I like a lot of it. I really do. Tom Hanks did a good job. Not just with the wonders putting together fake Beatles type songs. He he's got like fake Sherelle songs, and he's got A Secret Agent Man kind of parody. You know, very much the sorts of songs we've been going through. But they're all, in many cases, better than what we actually got. Wow. Ah. So it's a good album. All right, at number 90, The Little Boy by Tony Bennett not one of Tony Bennett's best. It's a good performance from Tony. It's a weak song.
2: I agree. I mean, you know how much I love Tony, but he sings it beautifully, but the song's a little cliched. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Nature Boy in in a way in in terms of the structure of it, but it's kind of heavy-handed in terms of the subject matter about a man saying oh where did my childhood go I want to go back to you know the child you know the innocence and everything and the- I'll never find that little boy
4: that boy I used to...
2: It's just not a real standout song. The lyrics are just heavy-handed.
3: The arrangement doesn't work with it either because you've got almost festive-sounding arrangement with the tinkly light pe- percussion in the background and those almost like flute instruments in there. It's, it, it completely goes against what the lyrics are about. It, it doesn't work. It clashes.
2: Maybe it was trying to capture childhood innocence, but on the other hand, it's kind of sad.
1: Yeah. All right, at number 95, The Harlem Shuffle by Bob and Earl. We probably all know this better from the Stones cover of the tune. It's a really good song. I love the original. I love this song. I still like the Stones version better.
2: Oh, I like this version.
1: This is my favorite version, this.
2: Me too. Yeah. Oh, man, this is a banger.
3: It's an absolute stone-cold soul classic.
2: You got it. Thank God the Stones resurrected this. I do love
3: the Stones version as well. I will say, yeah,
2: but I think this wins for me. are just incredible. The lyrics aren't brainy or anything.
1: It's a dance song, but it's a good dance song.
2: Exactly. Bob and Roll work perfectly together. Full of soul and the drums, the bass, but the horns do it for me. It is just oozing with soul. I love it.
1: Nitty Gritty would have been a much better song had they adopted some of this production style
2: exactly and when this song came out i'm like now we're getting somewhere <laughs> so thank you rolling stones for introducing us to this song the horns are
3: almost very otis redding atlantic sort of sounding
1: almost like southern soul like something out stacks mm. at number 96 another entry in the world music genre the bahama Marimba band with Coming in the back door, which Kit accidentally originally posted as coming in my back door, which would be a <laughs> very different song.
2: <laughs> that's a little naughty. Yeah. <laughs> this is a G rated song. Sorry about that.
3: There's no odd ha here.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> world music is a little bit of a stretch because this is very commercialized. This band was actually formed by Herb Alpert after his own Tijuana Brass. And believe it or not, this band outlasted the Tijuana Brass by several years because Chuck Barris, who we all know from the 70s shows like The Gong Show, included this group's music on his game shows in the 70s. And listening to this, I could kind of see why, because yep. it has a little campy appeal to it. So the Baja Marimba Band was formed in 62, basically with top session musicians, including Hal Blaine, we're back with him, and Leon Russell, believe it or not, yep. among many others. And a number of them played with top jazz musicians, Dizzy Gillespie, Woody Herman, Sam Kenton, you name it. And this is a little cringe worthy. We've talked on the show about things that have not aged well. Well, here's one of them. The group would sometimes appear on stage dressed in sombreros and old clothes, with fake mustaches, smoking cigars, and drinking beer, all of which was exaggerated Mexican stereotypes. Mm. Yikes. Oh
1: it's amazing how many records Leon Russell was in, and that will also serve as our Beatles reference for this song. Exactly. I
2: definitely thought this was kind of background music. You could slap this on maybe for a cocktail party or something. Unobtrusive background music. That's about it.
3: Put it at the end of a sitcom.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That fills you in with the chuck barris thing and they are not mentioned in confessions of a dangerous mind if you want to see something that's slightly mind-blowing watch that movie the chuck barris biopic yeah
2: i've I've been meaning to see that i've heard it's pretty
1: insane i still don't know whether he actually believes he was a government spy or if he's just trying to pull one over on everybody because he's so (laughs) earnest about it yep Without going into detail, what Chuck Barris says is part of the deal with the newlywed game, he had to accompany the newlyweds as they went on their world travels. What Chuck Barris says is, oh, that was all a cover, so I could safely cover the world and be a spy. Okay. The band actually doesn't get mentioned in the movie. I've never read the novel. Perhaps I should read the book to see if he finds a place for them there. Yeah, who knows? At number 100, a great record. The Return of the Ronettes with Baby I Love You, probably their second biggest record of their career.
2: Classic Phil Spector production. The drums on this are so powerful. One of the best girl group singles of all time.
1: Spector Greenwich, Barry, and our old good friend Specs, once again. Indeed.
3: If you haven't heard this song, give yourself a slap and then go and have a listen to it.
2: Oh, and featuring background vocals by Cher
1: and Sonny Bono. Cher was on one of the late night shows recently, and she was actually talking about doing the background vocals back in the early days and, and how Phil would just, you know, pull them in. Yep, little trivia there. All right, so we move on to the last week of December in 1963, the week before the world would change. December the 28th at number 61 for you by Rick Nelson. This would be Rick, Ricky Nelson's final top 10 hit of the 60s. Wow, It's
3: okay, but he's done better.
2: The song dates from, like, 1930. It was written then, and then it was introduced in a short film called Billboard Girl in 32, and it was sung by Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby's back. But the best-known version is this one by Rick Nelson. The difference is, when you listen to this one as opposed to Bing Crosby's, I mean, they've obviously change. The keyboard part definitely places it in the early 60s rock sound, and I do like the guitar solo.
0: I will it gather-
4: Over the stream, harvest of clover, I lay at your feet. Oh, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do for you. Yes, baby, for you.
1: It's a roller rink organ. Yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and it wasn't because Ozzy and Harriet was canceled. Ozzy and Harriet would be on the air for another three years. It's just that it couldn't launch any of Rick Nelson's songs at that point. I said i had had enough six months ago. I guess the audience hit that peak at about here. Not to mention, well, as I just said, things are about to change next month. That's right. At number 72, Leslie Gore's You Don't Own Me, Quincy Jones again. This is a, a really good song.
2: I love this song. Talk about ahead of its time. We've talked on this show so much about songs I'm gonna get married and I'm you know I'm gonna wear his ring and I'm this is just astounding. First of all, the song is written by a couple of men. John Madera and David White. Leslie Gore recorded this when she was 17 years old just amazing, and she, later on, Wazigore said she considered this her signature song.
4: You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other boys.
2: The lyrics to this, I just astounding how ahead of their time they were. I'm young and I will love to be young. I'm free and I want, you know, love to be free. And don't tell me what to do. Don't change me in any way.
1: It is a great vocal.
2: I mean, she sings this like she's lived it. She means every word of it. The production on this, I mean, it's Quincy Jones that crystal clear production. It's one of my all time favorite songs from the '60s. Just love it
3: beautiful song that must be Quincy that's done the arrangement then for the orchestration because that's perfect
1: yep absolutely and then as previously mentioned Leslie Gore would be one of the acts tacked on to the Beatles Washington Coliseum show as it made its way around theaters throughout the summer of 1964 at number 84 a song which brings up a Couple of acts which we have talked about so far in this year. My One and Only Jimmy Boy by The Girlfriends. It's not a great song, but it's interesting.
2: This was written and produced by David Gates. And in fact, in some parts, this sounds a little bit like Motown, with the hand clapping at the beginning, the drum beat. Other than that, it kind of sounds like just sort of a typical girl group song of the time. But when I saw this was David Gates, I just thought, what? Doesn't sound like him at all, but you've got to start
1: somewhere. Well, and some of the members of The Girlfriends included some of the members of Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans remember them with zippity Doodah from earlier in the year.
2: Exactly, and that group was created by Phil Spector. Yeah, so it's really not that it's such a great song. It's it's the people behind it. Oh, and the session for this song was arranged and paid for by Jan Berry of Jan and Dean.
3: Wow, this is like a who's who.
1: (laughs) And it should be noted that Part of the reason why it had its own troubles, the record was issued around the time of Kennedy's assassination. Obviously, you know, didn't do well. All right, at number 85, In the Summer of His Years by Connie Francis, speaking of President Kennedy, this was actually meant as a Kennedy tribute, although I kind of don't see it.
2: the lyrics, I mean, it pretty much tells of what happened. It's just not really that well written. It was written by Herb Kretzmer, lyrics and music by David Lee. They wrote the song hours after learning of JFK's assassination, and it was first performed by English singer Millicent Martin uh,
1: during a tribute. The show was That Was the Week That Was, which of course the theme was written by George Martin. Yes. And so they had prepared an entire show. And then, well, that fateful day happened. And it's like, ooh, we can't use any of this material. Mm -hmm. And so within just a very short amount of time, they put together an entire tribute to President Kennedy.
2: And I think that also aired in the U.S., not long after uh, it aired on the BBC. A- NBC aired it, yes. Yeah. And so then after it was performed on that, other artists recorded this, notably Mahalia Jackson and then Connie Francis. When you read the lyrics, a young man rode with his head held high under the Texas sun.
1: It's a C&W song, and Connie Francis's voice is just... Totally unsuitable for it.
2: Yeah, I wonder why. I could see maybe Mahalia Jackson. Kate Smith was another that recorded this later. That I could see, but kind of an interesting choice.
3: This is a case of being given five or ten minutes to write a song and needing about a week to actually make it better.
2: This could have been okay if they'd had more time to refine it.
3: Going back to Millicent Martin, just as a tangent. I know Millicent Martin the most from, and this is sort of embarrassing, I know her from the song Nelly the Elephant that was produced by George Martin.
1: That is recognized as one of the early George Martin hits. Oh, wow. All right, at number 95, Pink Dominoes by the Crescents featuring Chio. I like the Chio lead guitar. The rest of the song, well, not so much.
3: That's not how you spell dominoes.
2: This is a weird, weird song. First of all, Chio is a woman, a female surf guitarist. This song was composed by a local record store owner in in Oxford, California, and it was cut in a makeshift studio located in a shoe store. And it was pressed by a, I love how this was described, a shoestring operation, <laughs> get it, <laughs> called Breakout Records. And that's why it has this very rough sound to it, because it was, it was a makeshift studio. Boy, this is the definition of garage rock. I mean, it's sloppy, raw, unfocused. I mean, The you song know, goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. I mean, it is just kind of all over the place and... Yeah. Did I mention sloppy?
3: <laughs> Her guitar is great, but everything else is bad.
2: Exactly.
1: But yeah, the rest of it is just like... We, we, we are all in agreement, but we do get a Beatles reference out of this. One of the members of the band was a gentleman named Tom Bresh, spelled either T-O-M or T-H-O-M, depending upon who you want to believe. Tom Bresh was the son of Merle Travis, mm-hmm. country, won't quite call him country music legend, but certainly country music star, figure from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Oh, Merle Travis, incredible he, guitarist. Merle Travis is the one who came up with Travis Picking. Yes. That is what he is named after. And well, if you don't know what Travis Picking is and what it has to do with the Beatles, just ask Donovan. Cool. So there's a direct line from this song to the White Album. Yep. Who knew? All right. At number 96, Barbara Lewis with Snap Your Fingers. It's a good song, but it's not a great song. Snap your
4: fingers. back to you
2: on bended knees. snap your finger I come
1: running. it's a good vocal it's a good arrangement she would become much better known for baby I'm yours
2: I actually kind of like this. I think her voice elevated this. I liked her jazz sort of phrasings, You know, reminding me a little bit of Nancy Wilson. And I actually did like the arrangement, keeping it simple as we've been talking about throughout the show. Drums, piano, horns, bass, it just never overwhelmed her. Really very confident singer. Never realized how good a vocalist she was. You know, she really carried this song well. She just really took hold of this song and never let go. I could just picture her performing this live, leaning against a piano.
1: I like it, too. Good, but maybe not great, but Mm -hmm. I do like it.
3: To me, it needed a bit more oomph in there, whatever. I don't know what I mean by that. Just a bit more of a kick. Just needed a bit more raunch, maybe, in the arrangement. I don't know.
1: In later years, she would cover both Twist and Shout and Yesterday, which is kind of an interesting combination of songs to cover. Hmm, interesting.
2: I could see her doing Yesterday, but Twist and Shout, that's interesting.
1: All right, at number 99, Never Love a Robin by Bobby V. While not quite bad enough to be on our (laughs) Dogs of 1963, it's pretty close. I was going to
2: say, boy, that's close. And you can't
4: tame her, so don't you blame her when she says goodbye.
1: It's more of the saccharine sickeningly sweet kind of stuff. Oh, sorry, Bobby. It's the apple jam disc.
2: (laughs) Some of it musically almost sounded like it was a children's song. It could be on Sesame Street. I wrote down Sesame
3: Street. (laughs)
2: I really did. Great minds, Martin. Great minds. (laughs) Um, That's so funny. But then, of course, the lyrics, not Sesame Street. You can't tame her. You just can't tame her. Tell her goodbye. Corny. Just corny.
1: All right. We close out the Billboard charts for 1963 at number 100 with Where When by The Letterman. We've we've talked about The Letterman and how influential they were upon the Beach Boys. Unfortunately, this song is not one of their better ones.
0: It seems we stood and
4: talk like this before We look at each other in the same way then.
1: really good harmonies the lead vocal is weak and and insubstantial and once again you got one of those over dramatic endings
2: I don't like their version of the song. I have love the song. I mean, it's a standard. Tony Bennett did great version. Frank Sinatra.
1: Yeah, it's not the song in and of itself. It's their performance yeah. and their arrangement of the song that's like, Oof.
2: Exactly. So but I just wanted to clarify that. Love the song, but they've just made it kind of, I hate to say it, boring. I mean, and it isn't a boring song. It's a beautiful song. But I don't like the vocal arrangement and the musical arrangement. It just sounds a little on the musaki side mm. i thought they were
3: trying for almost like a four freshman style vocal harmony but not quite getting there they were trying but failed
2: no sorry letterman fans i'm really sorry the four freshmen were so much more sophisticated and their harmonies yeah. were just breathtaking Lying there and staring at the sea.
1: their final successful single would come in 1971 where they cover john lennon's love yep i heard
2: it it's interesting take a listen Definitely sounds very different than John.
3: (laughs) I'll probably still prefer John's version, I'm guessing.
1: All right. So that closes us out on the American side for December of 1963. And in fact, all of 1963, closing on a couple of thoughts. It hasn't been a great year except for soul and R&B.
2: Somebody commented on our Facebook group that they were really surprised. They were expecting all the pop and everything, but that soul in R&B, the fact that it played such a large role in 1963, they were really surprised. And I think that was one of the big high points of 1963, you know, some great soul in R&B. Yeah, that was David Hines who
3: who mentioned that, because I said to him about that, and I mean, I, I sort of pushed this in a way because... You know, he's right. There's a lot in there, but the thing is that, like I said as a response to it, I think there's some absolute soul and R&B classics in there that just didn't get as far into the charts or up the charts as I think they should have. I think they were still being held back.
2: Some of them, you'd think, oh, like, oh these are classics. You know, they remember and yeah, they they didn't score as high on the charts as you would have expected. That's very true. And, you know, maybe some of the labels they were on, you know, didn't have enough distribution. Hard to say.
1: All right. So join us next time as we enter the brave new world of 1964. Our feature is going to be, well, more of what we just discussed. Uh, Cashbox for the first four issues of 1964 goes from What's going to happen? Oh, uh, something will happen to by the last week of January 1964. Oh, what about these Beatles? <laughs> Even if they're just a fad, they'll be good for the industry, don't you think? Might help pick up sales and, you know, might do something. As we will discuss, and as you have mentioned, Cashbox is almost reluctant to admit that the charts weren't all that great in 1963. You know, it had its high points, but it was definitely a down year. It is also kind of funny because, you know, when we started way back in January of 63, Cashbox was saying, oh, well, 1962 was kind of a slow year. Maybe things will pick up in 63.
2: (laughs) And then, yeah, at the end of the year, they say, well, you know, maybe things will change in 64. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Little did they know. Would it ever change in 64? Join us as we enter the American Beatles, but not the American Beatles. No. <laughs> the Beatles on the American charts. That's B E A T L E S. Not those other guys. Not the former Ardells.
2: That's right. The real ones. And we'll be back soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See you next time.
1: Take care.
0: There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records. Remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there, they've obviously thought how stupid that is. How stupid is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is gonna be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.